Well, good singing with you this morning, and always appreciative of our music team leading us in worship. The first service had plenty of extra sleep. You got extra sleep too, but this now is pressing into your lunch hour. So I have more concerns for this service than the first service. Earlier in our service, uh, Pastor Ian read for you the passage of Scripture that is our focus of attention for this morning's message. It's a passage you would have read this past week. I'd encourage you to take your Bibles out. Turn with me again to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to reread verses 3 through 11 as we make our way through the message this morning. As you read this passage this past week, I'm sure many of you are familiar with its words. It's an often quoted passage. It's very familiar. I'm concerned with this passage that our familiarity with it might be obscuring the weight of it. This is a very potent passage of Scripture. I've titled the message, Strong Comfort, because these passages or these paragraphs contain some profound truths about God and His ministry toward us that serves as a ballast, as a stabilizing force, as a foundation for our lives as we experience a great variety of afflictions and trials and difficulties. So uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. We're going to uh, work our way through the text. And then before this is over, I trust to draw some lines from the text into our present lives. And uh, that'll be the, the hope before we go. Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into the text for this morning. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you again this morning as we do Sunday by Sunday. And right now we have your word open before us in our laps. And we're so thankful for the scripture. We're so thankful that we have been blessed with... Uh, the Bible in our language, actually many translations in our language that we have been blessed with that we might read and meditate and study and, and uh, grow in our, our knowledge of and grow in faith as a result of our time in your word. Uh, Father, we are grateful to hear the testimony earlier this morning of the uh, North Wagi people receiving a copy of the scripture in their language. We are so appreciative of Robin and Levi and their team that has labored there for more than two decades, planning a church and now translating the scripture. We're grateful that that translation work of the New Testament is complete and they're going to print. Grateful for our participation in that. We would pray for them, that they too would use your word, that they too would read it and study it and share it and meditate upon it and grow in faith and grace and knowledge and obedience as a church. We pray that this would be used mightily, not only in the church, but as, a, uh, as part of their outreach. So we're grateful for that, and we uh, commit them to you in prayer. But now as we just uh, desire to focus our attention on your word this morning, we pray that you would teach us, because we need to hear from you, we need to learn from you. So lead us in your word, we pray this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, you've, uh, you've asked to go through this text uh, slower than most studies that we've done, and so we're going to do that this morning. Look at uh, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll pause there. How's that for a start? It could be translated, all praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, this is interesting because throughout the Old Testament, if we were reading through our Bibles, and as we read through the Old Testament, we would have repeatedly read the title, the God and Father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That had been a familiar title for us. But now on the pages of the New Testament, we read, the God and Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're very familiar with that, but that would have been significant then. That very title would have, what been, would have had Paul thrown out of the synagogue, the proclamation of Jesus Christ as the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Savior. Uh, God, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
He made promises to them uh, and to many others, the prophets, concerning the promised Savior who would come into the world as humanity's deliverer and creation's liberator. Uh, He would be the one who would destroy evil through defeating the evil one. The promised rescuer has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's finished his work through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, and he is described here as the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus Christ is not just another prophet. He is the Lord. The Old Testament prophets spoke for God, but the Lord Jesus, he is God. He's the word of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. So God isn't just the father of the prophets. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jeremiah, Daniel, all of those. God is also the father of the promised Savior. And the promised Savior, Christ Jesus, is the Lord. So in other words, the Father is God and Jesus is God. And this is significant theological development in the pages of Scripture. As we continue reading this letter, we're going to get to chapter 3, verse 17, and we're going to read that the Spirit of God is also called the Lord. So the Father is God, Jesus is God, and the Spirit is God. Jesus, that promised Savior, has come and has been revealed in time and space. The Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to serve as the presence of Christ in us, the believing community who make up the church, and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the Lord, the singular Lord, whom we worship and whom we have been joined to by grace through faith. Uh, this This is significant. As I said, we're very familiar with that title. And the Corinthians would have been familiar with that title, but this is the very title concerning Jesus that would have had Paul eradicated from the synagogue. All right, let's read on. If we spend that much time with every verse, we'll be in this book forever. But let's look at verses three and four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, all praise to him, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We'll pause there. God permits afflictions. God provides comfort. The comfort God provides matches and is more than the trials that we face. For the abundant comfort that we receive flows into our life and overflows as we share God's comfort with one another. So we receive Afflictions, we receive comfort from God, and we give comfort away, because the God of all comfort doesn't have comfort in short supply. We're not going to run out of that resource. Uh, We are like 100% welfare recipients in need of comfort, and God's comfort flows into our life, and it's more than we need to match our trials, and we share that comfort with one another. The God of all comfort provides comfort, and that comfort is mediated between God's people. That's significant. That means the comfort of God is not abstract or ethereal or spiritual. It's embodied. It's personal. It's from God and it's shared between us. The other interesting thing about this passage is I don't have to share in your trials in order to share God's comfort. That's a real blessing because I couldn't endure all of your trials. But I can still share with you God's comfort Because the scripture says, God comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we've received from God. Now, as we read this paragraph, we come to understand that the word comfort is used 10 times in five verses. That's a lot. The word comfort can actually be translated encouragement. 
It's the same word, and it's used both ways in the New Testament. This comfort that we receive from God is more than just eased psychological feelings. It's more than psychological relief. This comfort that we receive from God and that we share with one another is strong encouragement. It is comfort and mercy and courage and strength. It's from God. It's sufficient for the trial. It's shared between us. The trial might not go away. We often think that too. When we receive comfort from God, that means the trial is eradicated. Not true. Remember Paul, later in this letter, is going to refer to a thorn in the flesh that he asked to have removed multiple times. And it was not removed because God's grace was sufficient. God's comfort was sufficient. And so here is comfort that is sufficient for the trial that is at hand. All right, verse 5. Let's press on. We're still in this context. Paul says, For as we share abundantly... In Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is firm, is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Let's talk about this suffering and comfort a little bit. There are sufferings and trials and afflictions that are general in nature. What I mean by that is they are experienced by everyone everywhere all the time. Just as there is common grace that is experienced by everyone everywhere all the time. Uh, Common grace such as sunshine and rain and family and food and friends. But there are also common afflictions that are experienced by everyone everywhere. Sickness and disease, scarcity and selfishness, and all sorts of troubles that is experienced everywhere. Uh, We know this because even though the new age of Christ's reign has begun, the old age is still operational. We live in the overlap of the ages. Jesus Christ has come, and he is king, and Jesus is coming again. But today, we all live with the consequences of mankind's rebellion toward God in the Garden of Eden on this cursed planet. And troubles and afflictions are still our experience, and death is still our enemy. These afflictions will be concluded when the victorious Jesus returns in glory and all of God's enemies are placed under his feet. But today, while there are afflictions that are general in nature and experienced by everyone, Paul shares about something different here. He shares about common sufferings that are specific to sharing in Christ's sufferings. This is the predominant context of this passage. So in this passage, Paul isn't necessarily speaking about sickness and disease. He's speaking about suffering that is associated to belonging to Jesus Christ. There are sufferings that are associated with following Jesus and identifying with him everything from social marginalization to outright persecution and even death. Uh, Consider the Apostle Paul and his experience with the Corinthians. I mean, he's the author of this letter. They're the recipients of the letter. Consider their experience. Paul came to the city of Corinth because persecution pressed on him everywhere he was before his arrival. Every town he was in, everywhere he was before Corinth, he had to leave town before his life was taken from him. So if you can think through that second missionary journey, Paul travels over into Macedonia, what happens to him in Philippi? This is a great educational review right here. What happens to Paul in Philippi? Imprisonment. He has to leave town, beatings, and he's put in stocks. Uh, He travels to the next time, Thessalonica. What happens there? 
There's a mob and such a riot, his life is in danger and he has to leave town. He goes down to Berea. Well, the Bereans were more noble. And they studied the scripture diligently to see if what Paul was saying was actually true. But the same thing happens in Berea. He has to, he has to, he's forced to leave. And so eventually he gets to Corinth. And when he comes to the city of Corinth, what happens to him there? We looked at this last week. When Paul arrives in Corinth, he first goes to the synagogue. Those are his own people. Paul is a Hebrew. He's a Jew. He's a trained Pharisee. He would be a recognized leader. But he goes to the Jews, and they reject him. Ever been rejected by your own people? They reject him because of his testimony of the resurrection and his identification with Jesus Christ. So for Paul, there was persecution for Jesus Christ before he arrived, and then there was persecution when he got there. So we read this passage and we're like, what comfort did Paul receive in Corinth? And what comfort did the Corinthians receive from Paul? Because he's talking about a shared affliction and shared comfort. So how is this, how is this taking place? Well, as you think it through, as a result of afflictions, Paul came to them. And when he came to them, he shared the good news from God concerning Jesus Christ with them, and they believed the message, and they placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And when the Corinthians believed in Jesus Christ, they were joined to God. They were joined to one another. They experienced sin forgiven and new life. They became new creations. So Paul's afflictions benefited the Corinthians by leading them to their ultimate comfort, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of their faith in Jesus Christ and their conversion, Paul was comforted because of God working in him and through him for their faith. So the Corinthians were comforted by Paul, being led to faith in Jesus, and Paul was comforted by the Corinthians' comfort and encouraged as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. So Paul and the Corinthians now share a common life in Jesus Christ. And in that common life in Jesus Christ, they will share the same sufferings of identifying with Jesus, but they'll also share the same comfort. They'll share the same comfort because they now have the same hope. It's an unshakable, firm hope of belonging to Jesus Christ. This is significant. Uh, In the next paragraph, with all of this introduction that Paul gives about the uh, God of all comfort and Father of mercies and, and, and sharing in common Uh, uh, sufferings and comfort, Paul gets uh, biographical with it next. He shares a personal illustration. And uh, so let's look at his personal illustration in verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. That's to the east of Macedonia, where he was. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's a burden for you. That's an extremely heavy burden beyond human ability to endure. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? You're like, this is it. My life is over. Well, Paul is there. He goes on to say, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. What comfort is there? But that overwhelming burden was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again, 
So you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. When Paul was burdened beyond his ability to endure, he learned something. Now, that's interesting. Because I think many of us have the mistaken notion that the apostles were perfected. That somehow they were perfect in faith and perfect in obedience because, after all, they were apostles. <laughs> we don't find that to be true throughout the Scripture. We find the apostle Peter getting corrected. We find the apostle Paul's theology being developed and his obedience being matured. And so Paul says here, uh, when he was burdened beyond his ability to endure, he learned something. Something he didn't know before. What did he learn? He learned to rely on God who raises the dead. Paul knows that God raises the dead. Paul knows that God raised Jesus from the dead. He wrote about it. The first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul knows that Jesus will raise Christians from the dead when he returns. But it's in this overwhelming affliction he personally learned to rely on God who raises the dead. One of the benefits of God-permitted trials and beyond personal ability affliction is a deepening personal faith in God who raises the dead. That is a true comfort. That is a genuine blessing and encouragement, and it's something that we couldn't produce on our own. God permits the afflictions. God provides the comfort. The comfort is often shared between us. And in those burdens that are over our head, we learn to rely on God in ways we could not have done all on our own. In these opening paragraphs as we're reading this, Paul gives numerous benefits to suffering and to comfort. Benefits such as divine deliverance from trouble. Sometimes that happens, and Paul experienced that, divine deliverance from trouble, uh, comfort and encouragement in the midst of trouble, comfort mediated between believers, and a fellowship with God's people that is expressed and experienced through prayer. The benefits of God-permitted sufferings and comfort is multifaceted, but arguably the greatest one is a deepening trust and confidence in God who is capable of doing the impossible and who will do the impossible even if it isn't in answer to prayer like we thought it would be. Paul prayed that he'd have his thorn removed. Thorn wasn't removed. The answer to the prayer was just comfort and encouragement and grace that was sufficient for the trial. That brings up the question because Paul references it here at the end. He encourages the church in Corinth to pray for him and to help him in his prayer or to help him by their prayer. Let me ask you a question. How does prayer help? They're in Achaia. He's in Asia. He's experiencing difficulties beyond his ability to endure those. He asked the church to pray for him. He, he writes in all his letters, and he asked the church to pray for him. Let me ask you, how does prayer help? How does God work through the prayers of his people and not diminish his own sovereign will? You got an answer for that? Yeah, I don't either. There's a bit of mystery there. How does God work through the prayers of his people and not diminish his own sovereign will? How does prayer help? Well, through the practice of prayer, we express our dependency upon God. 
Through the practice of prayer, we join with one another in seeking God's help and comfort. And through prayer, our union with God and our communion with one another is expressed. Prayer does change things. Prayer certainly changes us. It deepens our dependency upon God and our fellowship with Him and our fellowship with one another. It grows us in faith. And it moves us forward in the exercise of love in one another's life. Prayer and answers to prayer, as Paul says, results in the community of believers expressing their thanks to God. Increases our gratitude. So prayer helps. Prayer helps in ways that we see and in ways in which we cannot comprehend. Prayer belongs to those who belong to God. And God, God's people, are a praying people. It's interesting as we have uh, checked out this opening paragraphs of Paul's letter, his second letter to the Corinthians, it's interesting that the text begins with all praise, all praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it ends with all thanks be to God. And in between the praise to God and the thanks to God is the context of suffering and comfort that is for our good, for our growth in faith, for our fellowship as his people and for our unity and faith and fellowship. All right, that's the development of the text. Uh, Next week, you're going to read further. You're going to read chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 4, and uh, we'll press into that text. But for the moments we have remaining, I've got a little bit of time here, I'd like to draw some lines from the text into our present experience. So think along with me for just a moment. There's a lot going on in our world right now. Y'all know that. We're not living in first century Corinth. There's a lot going on in first century Corinth. A lot going on then too. When Paul arrived in Corinth, it was a result of persecution. And when he gets to Corinth, who does he connect with? Who are the first people he connects with? Who are the people that he lived with in Corinth? He had to stay somewhere. Who did he live with? Y'all need to go back and read the book of Acts. He arrives there, and the first couple he meets and he lives with would be Priscilla and Aquila. They're Jews. They would have been in the synagogue. He became tent makers with them as he supported himself as he did ministry in Corinth. Why are Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth? Why are they there? Is it just a cool seafaring town? They wanted to live by the ocean? Thought it'd be cool to live on the Mediterranean and on Corinth? No, they're in the city of Corinth because every Jew had been kicked out of Rome by edict, by command from the Caesar. So from the river to the sea, that's been their experience, the Jews' experience, for a long time. Well, in our world today, there's a lot going on right now, as there's a lot going on all of the time. And the stuff that's going on right now in our world is causing... Various people, various degrees of distress. Some of it is actual physical distress in war-torn communities. For many of us today here, it's just anxious distress. Uh, today, this is like a journalist heyday. There's, there's no shortage of anxiety-producing news to keep people angry and anxious and tuned into the media. Russia, China, Ukraine... Taiwan, Israel, Hamas, global protest, corrupt U.S. government, politics. 
With all that's going on in our world, it often raises the question, how are you and I going to be prepared for what's coming? That's a big deal. How are you and I going to be prepared for what's coming? Well, what's coming? People want to know what's coming so that they might be prepared. And so they'll quickly lend their ear to anyone who seems to have an answer for what's coming. And there are a lot of answers out there. A lot of people seem to have an answer. Everything from weird, wacky stuff to actual potential real-life scenarios. And none of them sound good. So who's got your ear? Who are you listening for? Who are you listening to for answers to the question, what's coming? From the biblical text, let me ask you and me this question. How will you and I be prepared for a burden that is beyond our ability to prepare for? How will you and I be prepared for a burden and a trial that is beyond our ability to prepare for? That text has an answer for us. You know, let me remind you, we're still living in the overlap of the ages. The old age has come, the new age has come, Jesus has come, Jesus is coming again, new age has been inaugurated, Christ is reigning, but it's not yet consummated, so we all live with the consequences of that rebellion of mankind in the Garden of Eden. The curse continues, and death is still our enemy. We have, every one of us, we have experienced suffering. And because we still live where the old age is operational, there's still more suffering coming. There's more suffering on the way. Affliction, trouble, difficulty will be our experience until Jesus comes again and sets all things right and makes all things new. So, so the, the message is there's more, there's more suffering coming. How are you and I going to be prepared for the suffering that's coming? We like to store up for the future so that we might be prepared. We like to be self-resourced. We like to be self-reliant. I mean, goodness sakes, I like to have two lawnmowers because God forbid I fall behind in my lawn mowing if one of my lawnmowers breaks down. You know, I now live in a subdivision. It's a strange new world that I now live in. You gotta mow your lawn regularly. I've got neighbors. We, we like to store up. We like to have additional. We like to have resources because we like to be self-resourced and self-reliant. Comfort and encouragement isn't something you and I can store up for the future. It's experienced when needed, and you and I don't get advanced doses of it. Well, we can grow in faith, but comfort comes when comfort is needed. In our current situation, everyone wants to know what's coming so they can be prepared, and I say, well, how can you and I be prepared for what's coming? We don't know what's coming tomorrow. So we ought to quit pretending like we do. But we do know what's coming down the road. We're not unaware of that. When Jesus was asked about the signs of his coming and the end of the age, he answered them. When he was asked about the end of the age, Jesus said there would be wars and rumors of wars and nation would rise against nation. And then he said, see that you're not alarmed. Huh, good. Thank you, that helps because we're there. He said there would be wars and rumors of wars and nation would rise against nation. See that you're not alarmed. He said there would be famines and earthquakes in various places. There would be increasing global persecution against God's people and a correlating apostasy, a falling away from Jesus Christ 
when the increasing cost for following Jesus comes. He said there would be an increasing number of false prophets leading people astray. Their lawlessness would increase. Love would run cold. The gospel would be proclaimed in all the world, and endurance would be needed for salvation to be experienced. The Apostle Paul said nearly the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He said, in the last days there would be times of difficulty. People will be, I, I wonder if we've ever seen people like this. Listen to this description. People will be selfish, greedy, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to all authorities, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Ever run into people like that? Then he goes on to say, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its efficacy, its power, its effectiveness. We know what's coming. Oh, we don't know what's coming tomorrow. But we know it's coming in a big picture way. How are you and I going to be prepared for what's coming? We're going to be prepared through believing God's word, through taking God at his word and believing passages like this one. God is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He's the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our risen savior. He comforts us in our affliction. He provides the Affliction, he provides the comfort. He comforts us in our affliction. We are able to share comfort with one another. He teaches us to fully rely on him. God raises the dead. He will deliver us. He will raise us from the dead. In him, we have hope. In him, we have strong comfort and strong encouragement. He will not fail. That's really what Paul is getting at with the Corinthians. He's like, I want you to know God will not fail. He's your source of salvation. He's your comfort. He's all you need. He's your strong hope. He's delivered me. He will continue to deliver me. You help with prayer. Just know God will not fail. That's that's the weight of this opening paragraph. And so often, here's here's where we, we go with our familiarity with this passage. Typically, we read this passage and we say, well, I've experienced trouble, so I can help them in the trouble that they're having because I've had same trouble. That's what we typically do with this passage, right? We experience problems so that I can help you when you experience the same problem. Think through the end of that. I experience problems so I can help you with the same problem. That means I'm the resource of the comfort you need. That is going to fall way short, folks. Because your problems are going to be uniquely different to you. Even if we have a similar shared experience, your suffering is going to be unique to you because we don't have the same exact context. The comfort you need is the comfort that God supplies, not the comfort I can give. God doesn't fail. God doesn't fail. That's, that's the weight of this passage. It's, it's significant. It's profoundly helpful for us and we're grateful for it. So all praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us and giving us your word, revealing us who you are and what you're like, giving to us the Lord Jesus Christ, our risen, powerful Savior. Father, we stand in awe of you. We often don't understand all of the afflictions that you permit. 
but we rejoice in the comfort that you provide. It's more than sufficient for our needs. It flows through us to help other people. You are the author. You are the source. We rely on you. We are welfare recipients, and you provide the benefits, and we share those benefits, and we grow in our faith in you. Father, we don't know what's coming tomorrow. You've told us what's coming down the road and what we're looking forward to, not, as, not necessarily more suffering. We're looking forward to the return of Jesus and the eradication of all suffering and the end of all trouble with the end of all sin. So we look forward in faith to the return of Jesus Christ when all things will be made new and you will dwell among your people and you will awe us with your glory and grace for an infinite eternity. Father, you are our hope. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.